Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. So I'm grateful for that. This is our third week um, looking at the story of Gideon. He's probably one of the two most famous judges in the book of Judges. He, along with Samson, it's going to be our last week looking at him. And I want to remind us that two weeks ago, last time I preached, we talked about how God called Gideon to fight against the armies of Midian, and how after he called Gideon to that work, God decided to, in many ways, decimate Gideon's military force so that God might be the one who was shown strong. Gideon had 32,000 men, and God sifted those men down to the point where Gideon was standing, looking out down into the bottom of the valley at innumerable Midianites and Amalekites, and Gideon stood shoulder to shoulder with only 300 men. So God had taken Gideon's force from 32,000 down to 300 so that God might be the one who showed himself strong. It wasn't by Gideon's strength. It wasn't by Gideon's might. God was going to ensure that the victory pointed back to him. And so, two weeks ago, we read about Gideon charging down the side of the mountain into the valley toward the Amalekites, wielding in his hand and the men wielding in their hands alongside Gideon nothing but torches and trumpets. And God gave them an overwhelming victory against a foe that was 430 times their size. We're going to learn in chapter 8 that the the foe that they faced was 135,000 men. And Gideon with his 300 has this victory. So chapter 7 ends by saying that the men of Israel were summoned after that initial defeat after that initial battle where they charged down into the camp of Midian and the sword of the Midianites was turned once against the other. After that, chapter 7 ends by saying that, that Gideon called on all of Israel to come with him and they started chasing after the foe. Verse 25 says, the Israelites captured the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and they killed Zeb at the wine press of Zeb. While they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Orbs and Zeb to Gideon from across the Jordan. Okay, so now we're getting into chapter 8. We're going to read the entirety of this chapter because I think we're going to touch a lot of the, the different sections of it. So I'd ask if you stand with me now. If you have a Bible, please turn to chapter 8. It's 35 verses. Please pay attention as we read the word of the Lord. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, him being Gideon, what is this thing you have done to us, not calling us when you went to fight against Midian? And they contested with him vigorously. But he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiazar? God has given the leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, into your hands. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then... Their anger toward Gideon subsided and when he said that. 
Then Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the Jordan and crossed over, weary yet pursuing. He said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who are following me, for they are weary, and I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the leaders of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hands that we should give you bread to, bread to your army? Gideon said, All right, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will thrash your body with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. He went up from there to Penuel and spoke similarly to them. And the men of Penuel answered him just as the men of Succoth had answered. So he spoke also to the men of Penuel, saying, When I return safely, I will tear down this tower. Now Zeba and Zomuna were in Kartor, and their armies with them, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the entire army of the sons of the east, for the fallen were 120,000 swordsmen. Gideon went up by way of those who lived in tents, on the east, side, the east of Noba and Jagba, and attacked the camp when the camp was unsuspecting. Then Zeba and Zalmunna fled. He pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle by the ascent of Heres, and he captured a youth from Succoth and questioned him. Then the youth wrote down for him the princes of Succoth and its elders, 77 men. He came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, concerning whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are weary? He took the elders of the city, and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and he disciplined the men of Succoth with them. He tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of that city. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, What kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? And they said, they were like you, each one resembling the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if only you had let them live, I would not kill you. So he said to Jeshur, his firstborn, Rise, kill them. But the youth did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. Then Ziba and Zomuna said, Rise up yourself and fall on us, for as the man, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments which were on their camels' necks. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Yet Gideon said to them, I would request of you, that each of you give me an earring from his spoil. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. They said, we will surely give them. So they spread out a garment, and every one of them threw an earring there from his spoil. The weight of the earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple robes, which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the neckbands, which were on their camels' necks. Gideon made it into an ephod, and placed it in his city, Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there, so that it became a snare to Gideon and to his household. So Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel, and they did not lift up their heads anymore. The land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Now Jerubbabel, Gideon's other name, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. 
Now Gideon had 70 sons who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. His concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a ripe old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abizarites. Then it came about, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Bareth their god. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the household of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in accord with all the good that he had done to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that as we read of Gideon and the account of what he did and what you did through him, that we would see that you were speaking to us about our lives, our character, our faith, our action, that it isn't just a historical account to look back to, but it is truth to be inspired by. It is from your mouth to us, and so we pray that we would have ears to hear and that we would have hearts to receive what you have in store for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As we get started this morning, I want to ask you a question. How many of you have ever sought to learn how to play an instrument? Say piano. How many of you have ever started taking piano lessons in an attempt to learn? Guitar? Yeah, a lot of us. Okay. Now, I want to follow that up with another question. How many of you know how to play the piano? Wait, keep them up. I'm taking an inventory for a special offertory piece. Yeah, ah, uh, Mrs. Okay, I see ya. All right, you can put your hands down. You guys all see that? <clears throat> a lot more hands went up when I asked the first question. A lot, a lot of hands went up the second time around, but there were a number that didn't go back up. It's harder to complete something than it is to start it. It's much easier to start in on piano than it is to persevere and learn the theory, learn the chording, learn the scales, and come away able to read sheet music or to play by ear well. It's easier to start something than it is to complete it. And we can see that with lessons, music lessons. I've learned this in many ways, and so have you. Um, one of the things I like to do for my wife's birthday is to cook a meal for her. It's sort of a tradition. I cook not very often, but at least once a year. I'll cook, and it's so much easier to look online at recipes and to develop the mental checklist of what you need and what it's going to look like on the table than it is to actually do the work of going to Kroger, blowing my wife's entire monthly budget on one meal and then spending the rest of the day in the kitchen. You know what I mean? It's so much harder. Or maybe it's working on a home, and you've got all these, like, if you're a lady, like, you look at Pinterest, and you, you create an idea book of all these things that you're going to incorporate into your home, or if you're a guy, you do the same with something else. And it's a lot harder, <laughs> or Pinterest, or Pinterest. Somebody's calling my bluff out there. It's a lot harder once you start demoing the walls and finding out that your house ain't square, it's a lot harder to actually get it done than it is to, to start it. 
I remember when I first bought the house I'm living in today. I was a full-grown adult with children, and my dad gave me a tongue lashing when I took a hammer. One of the first things I did was I took this hammer and I started tearing out one of the center walls of the house. And, <laughs> and I was doing so in a way that made him nervous. It was a lot harder to take out that wall in the first five minutes of a home ownership than it was to actually complete the room that I had taken the wall out of. You know what I mean? It's a lot harder to complete something than it is to start. And this morning, I want to speak to us about the principle of pursuit, pursuing. Verse 4 of our text, chapter 8, says, Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the Jordan and crossed over the Jordan, headed east, weary, yet pursuing. Weary, yet pursuing. In April, as I was thinking about preaching through the book of Judges, I did just a, a flyby read through the book and I wasn't really trying to give much thought to Gideon because generally ideas would come easier from somebody like Gideon than from Jephthah or somebody else. But this verse right here popped into my head when I just, those words caught my attention and I've been thinking about it over the last few months. Gideon was weary yet pursuing. So that's, that's the title we're going with this morning. Weary yet pursuing. This is a good summary for what the Christian life ought to be. In fact... You could take this verse, weary yet pursuing, Gideon, weary yet pursuing, and you could anchor it to the idea that's given us by the Apostle Paul when he says that we are all running a race, and so we are to run as to win. Why does Paul say that we're to run as to win? Well, it's obviously because he knows that it's not good enough just to start. You have to keep running. You have to keep running when you grow tired, when your legs hurt, when you want to stop. And there are a few things that make a a chubby boy like me feel weary, like running, especially running a long distance. It's easy to feel motivated to start and drop some pounds. It's easy to buy them running shoes online because you're going to run. It's even easy to stretch. But once you get out on the sidewalk and you get a block, two blocks, three blocks in, for me, it starts hurting, and I don't like it. I grow weary, grow weary. And it feels like often, and some of you probably know what I mean, it feels like something inside of me is trying to practice tying bow ties with my appendix. You ever get that feeling right there? That's what it feels like. But if you're going to compete in a race, then you're going to train in a way that pushes you to your limits rather than taking it easy on yourself. You and I are going to have to embrace the appendix bow tie or we aren't serious about running to win. And that's what Paul says, run so as to win. And in our text, we read this historical account of Gideon being weary after a victorious battle, yet pursuing. This is what Paul's exhorting us to do run so as to win. Implicit in Paul's analogy is the idea of being weary and tired, yet still getting after it, despite weariness. And there are three uh, types of people in the passage, chapter 8, that we read. I want to outline them for us right now, and then we're going to go through them. The first type of people are those that aren't running. They aren't pursuing. And they need to get started. The second type of people are those like Gideon 
as he's pursuing in verse 4, they're in the midst of full-on pursuit. They're weary, they're tired, and yet they keep going. They keep going. The third type of people are actually like Gideon at the end of the chapter. People who have been faithful through times of weariness, through times of trial, through times of striving, and they've made it, and there's this significant temptation to coast on the victories of yesterday. So those are the three types of people we're going to look at. At the beginning of chapter 8, there is a potential family feud about ready to boil over. I don't know if you caught it. Gideon has just had this decisive underdog victory over the Midianites, an outcome that none of the tribes would have ever predicted. And the big older brother, the Ephraimites, you remember them from a few chapters ago, the Ephraimites come up to Gideon, and they're jealous. We're told in verse 1, look back at it if you've got your Bible, that they say to Gideon, what is this thing you have done? Not calling us when you went to fight against Midian. They're offended that Gideon hadn't called them to that fight. And they contended vigorously with him. The reality is, though, that despite their words, the Ephraimites here are in the bane of hypocrisy. Because, as Gideon very well knew, they would have not been interested in coming to his help if he had asked them. They were not interested in the work. They were interested in the glory. They were not interested in the sweat. They were interested in the wealth. They were interested in the prize. They were not interested in the pursuit. If they had been interested, think with me. We've been reading this together. Think with me. If they had been actually interested, if this was a genuine desire, then they should have gone to war with the Midianites and the Amalekites and the princes of the east long before Gideon got on the scene, shouldn't have they? Isn't that what God had told them to do initially? So if this desire was genuine, why had Gideon had to do it in the first place? This wasn't a desire of their hearts. They didn't want to fight and drive out the enemy. They wanted the glory. If we need further proof, that the Ephraimites are on an ego trip, we just need to look at Gideon's response. Look at how Gideon responds to them. Being in battle already, he wasn't looking likely to fight a twofold, two-front battle. And so he employs wisdom. He employs what Proverbs calls a soft answer, a soft response, and it turns away their wrath. He responds by complimenting them. Verse 2, what have I done in comparison with you? Ephraimites, what have I done? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abizar? God's given the leaders of Oreb and Zeb into your hands. What am I able to do in comparison with you? This was a display on Gideon's part of deference and wisdom. But it also reveals that Ephraim wasn't in it for God's glory, but for their own it was because of their ego. Gideon is sort of here playing to their ego. Gideon's compliment satisfies them and calms them down. Oh, yes, oh, yes. We are great already. We have done a lot already. Who is this guy in comparison with us? All right. We don't need to contend so vigorously with this little guy. 
They hadn't gone after it, nor would have they been inclined to do so before the miraculous victory had been won. It was only afterward that envy and jealousy motivate them to act offended at not being called to join in. It's also worth noting, just to make the point absolute, that we just have to look to the very next verse. If we don't buy their motivations here, we have to look to the next verse. And Gideon moves on and crosses the Jordan with how many men? 300. If they wanted to help him, they could have. But they didn't. They didn't want to. And so he goes on without them. After his run-in with the Ephraimites, Gideon crosses over the Jordan River, and he's weary, and he's tired, and he has two more really negative interactions with his fellow brother Israelites. We're told two different clans here. He said to the men of Succoth, please give me some loaves of bread to me and to my men and give us something to drink, for we are weary from pursuing the enemy. And what do they say in response to him? They say, do you have their heads too? No? Well, I guess we're not going to help you. Are their hands in your hands already? Well, no, we're not going to feed you then. We're not going to feed you. What's going on here? Gideon has arrived, weary and tired and worn down from this ongoing pursuit. Yes, his 300 soldiers had had the adrenaline rush of being in battle. They had had bolstered spirits from the victory, but it continues. It doesn't just end down there in the valley. Now they're chasing, and they've got their appendix in a bow tie, and their mouths are parched, and their stomachs are empty, and they're away from their families. They're away from their wives. They're away from their children. Their feet are hurting. But why this response from the men of Succoth when they say, please feed us? Obviously, these men from Succoth are not convinced that Gideon is going to land the final blow to the Amalekites and the kings of the east, are they? You can see it in their response. You understand. They say, have you, have you defeated them yet? Well, we won't help you. Well, what's going on here? They don't have, even after hearing of God's miraculous victory down in the valley, they don't have the faith to believe that God's going to continue to do what he said he would do. The victory isn't totally secured yet. Gideon's going after it. But because it's not totally secured, they're unwilling to aid Gideon in any way. They don't want to have anything to do with Gideon or feeding him or helping him because they know in the back of their minds, if Gideon is unsuccessful, and the Midianites regroup. We ain't going to have any part in helping Gideon or his foes because it's going to put us in a, in a world of hurt if the Midianites come back and they find out that we've helped Gideon. You understand what I'm saying? They're fearing that Gideon's going to fail. And because they've helped Gideon, they're going to get a walloping. And it's faithless. And it's not just... The men of Succoth, is it? We're told amazingly in verse 8 that Gideon went from there to Penuel and spoke similarly to them, and the men of Penuel answered him just as the men of Succoth had answered. How defeating. Think about that for Gideon. You got 300 men, you've been victorious, and your brothers won't help you out. 
They won't even, not, not only are they, will they not fight with you, they won't even give you food. The first section of our chapter is written as a contrast between Gideon and his men who are pursuing the enemy and his fellow Israelites who are standing on the sidelines, unwilling to get involved when push comes to shove. They just don't want to have any part of it. And what we need to recognize is that some of us are like the Ephraimites. Some of us are like the men of Succoth. Some of us are like the men of Penuel. We want the good things. We want the prize. We want the things that we want. But we don't want the pursuit. Yeah, we want to drop 15 pounds, but we're not going to run. Mm-mm. You want the glory, but you don't want the striving. Notice that the men of Ephraim and Sukkoth are comfortable at home. They've got food. Gideon's asking them for food because they got it. Gideon's men are going on a long-distance run. And they don't even have bread to feed themselves. The pursuit of godliness will require you to leave comfort behind. It takes effort. It takes hard work. That's why many of us don't want to start. Pursuing the right things will take hard work and oftentimes comes with discomfort. If you find yourself living in comfort, if you find yourself living in ease, unable to see where the pursuit of godliness is causing you to be weary, if you don't have areas of your life where you're weary, then you are acting like the men of Ephraim. You need to start pursuing God's calling you to give your life and nothing less. He's calling you to expire your life for things that are so much bigger than yourself, for things that are so much more glorious than the things you want to live for and the things that I want to live for. He's calling you to things that are so glorious, so unattainable by His power, and He calls you to pursue those things. Will you stop pursuing what you want the piddly things that are down on the ground in the dirt and start pursuing the glories of heaven and trust him. Chase down obedience. Chase down whatever you're working through in repentance. Chase down understanding, being responsible, having a hard work ethic. Chase down relationships with those that need Jesus Christ. Stop ignoring them. Stop taking a detour around their cubicle. Chase down a bank account that doesn't overdraft. It can be many, many things here. God calls us to such a glorious pursuit. Do not be like the Ephraimites. Be like Gideon. In contrast with the tribe of Ephraim and the men of Succoth and Penuel stands Gideon, the man. An example of faith and courage and fortitude. After his first initial victory, he continues to pursue the enemy in obedience to what God has told him. And the theme of Gideon's pursuit may seem like a very small detail. The, the word pursue is mentioned a handful of times in chapter 8, but it's not this glorious theme throughout all of Judges. It's, it's kind of sort of a small detail. And yet Gideon knows that only pursuit of a beaten enemy gives the fruits of victory. Only the pursuit of the already beaten enemy really secures the fruit of victory. To illustrate that, I just was thinking about this principle of pursuit from war. 
And there's a general named Archibald Wavell, who was a senior officer in the British Army during the first half of the 20th century. And he led forces in both world wars, and then after World War II, he served as the commander-in-chief of India, and then as the viceroy of India until 1947, when he retired. And he's speaking to this military idea of pursuit, and this is what he says, and I think it's helpful for us as we think about our lives. Listen, to the uninitiated, pursuit seems like the easiest possible form of war. To chase a flying, presumably demoralized enemy must be a simple matter, promising much gain at the expense of some exertion and hardship, but little danger. Yet, the successful or sustained pursuits of all of history have been very few indeed. The escapes from a lost battle, many. The reasons are partially material, but mainly have to do with morale. A force retreating falls back on its depots and its reinforcements. Unless it's overrun, those that are retreating are growing stronger all the time. And there are many uh, expedients or measures besides fighting by which it can gain time. Bridges and roads could be blown up, uh, passages blocked, supplies destroyed. The pursuer soon outruns his normal resources. Gideon, out of bread, out of water, chasing after the enemy. He soon outruns his normal resources. He may possibly be able to feed himself at the expense of his enemies or of the countryside. He is not likely to replenish his ammunition and warlike equipment in the same way. But the chief obstacle, and here he's speaking to the chief obstacle that keeps us from pursuing The chief obstacle that every soldier has to overcome is psychological. The pursued has a greater incentive to haste than the pursuer, and unless he is demoralized, a stronger urge to fight. It is only natural that the soldier who has risked his life and spent his toil in winning a battle should desire relaxation in the safety of his own rewarded victory, and that the general and staff of the army should feel a reaction from the strain. So that while coolness and disaster is the supreme proof of a commander's charge, he ends by saying, the energy in pursuit is the surest test of his strength of will. Remember what this commander said, the successful or sustained pursuits of history have been very few. The escapes from a lost battle, many. This is Gideon. Not only was he weary and tired from the natural strain of pursuing the enemy, but he had to fight against the doubts and the cowardice of his own countrymen. He had to press on with an empty stomach and a parched throat when there seems to be diminishing reason to do so. Put yourself in the shoes of Gideon. You've already won. You've already slain how many? 120,000? And you're chasing after a mere 15? Why are you keeping on? Why do you continue to pursue? But he does. He's been faithful. He's already fought and won the battle. He's already spent time chasing down the enemy. Did he really need to keep going? He had chased them to the other side of the Jordan River. Wasn't that enough? No. He still needed to pursue. 
he still needed to keep going. Verse 10 says, Now Ziba and Zalmunna were in Karkor, and their armies were with them, about 15,000 of the 120. Gideon went up by the way of those who lived in tents, and he attacked the camp when the camp was unsuspecting. When Ziba and Zalmunna fled, again, there's that word, he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, and he routed the whole army. And now, there he's done it. He's completed the work that God had called him to do. He has finished the pursuit of this chapter of what God is calling him toward. Gideon wasn't content to settle for destroying the 120 and allowing those 15 to go off across the river and to regroup and to come back years later trying to make a resurgence. No, he's not content to do that. He's not going to do it. Gideon pursues and pursues and keeps going and going until he has captured the kings and routed the whole army. That is the word of the Lord. He continued to pursue what God had called him to. Gideon was weary, yet he didn't let his weariness, listen, he didn't let his weariness or his former successes and obedience to God serve as rationale for giving up the chase or letting him take his foot off the gas pedal. You understand that? Didn't let his weariness allow him to take off the gas pedal. He didn't let his success allow him to take off the gas pedal. Many of you are pursuing godliness, and it's such a joy to pastor in a church like God has given to us. You're fighting for godly marriage. You're pursuing your children's love and obedience. You're fighting your sins and pursuing greater faith. And yet the reality is if you're doing this well, if you're doing these things well, you will grow tired. You will grow weary. And the fact that you're weary doesn't mean that you're, you're losing. That's a lie that Satan will often give to us. The fact that you're weary doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong. The fact that you're tired and strained doesn't mean that you're not honoring God with what you're doing. Gideon's men were pursuing and yet were weary. And that is the Christian life. That is what God has called you to do. And so I, I want to encourage you and I also want to call you not to be content with the things you've already done. Don't be content with that battle, victory down in the valley. Keep going, keep going. That's, that's where it gets hard. That's where it gets hard. Keep pursuing a knowledge of the Scripture. Keep seeking to know it better. It's, it's not enough to just become a Christian and to have the eyes of your heart open to what the Word of God says and to absorb it and take it in for one or three or even eight or ten years. We must be students of the Word for a lifetime. Keep going. Keep devoting yourself to its study. Many of you are desiring to have children by faith and praise God, but it's not just bearing children. That's, that's when really the work begins. You need to continue to raise your children to, to honor God, to love Him. That's the real pursuit. Keep going. And maybe you have older children, and I need to encourage you that Maybe they're teenagers with their own autonomy now or more autonomy or maybe they're even outside of your home at this point. And yet you're still their father. You're still their mother. Keep going with them. 
Keep pursuing what God has called you to there. Don't, don't just say, no, we're in a different era. Now my responsibilities are, are done, are over. There's lots of new marriages in this church. What Praise God. Now you've gotten married. Great. Build a marriage that honors God. When I'm in small group, sometimes I'm irritated at myself um, when thinking about what God has done in my life. Those days are too far in the past, and I think, Nathan, you're not living by faith. If you can't, if you can't point to anything more recent than that, stop going there. You ever done that? You let your mind be satisfied by something that God did years in the past, like, oh, well, that, that satisfies what, I, what God desires of me. No. We don't want to settle for every powerful work of God in our lives being expired by five years, three years, one year. What's God doing in your life now? Keep pursuing. Keep pursuing. That's, the pursuit is where it really gets hard. Keep going. I wish I could say, turning to the last type of person, we've already talked about those that aren't in the pursuit, and then we've talked about Gideon being weary yet pursuing, and, and now we're going to turn to those that have been faithful but then want to coast. We're going to look at Gideon at the end of Gideon's life. I wish I could say that for those that fight hard and persevere when they're young, it's always analogous to what they're going to do when they're old. It'd be nice if starting well always ended in finishing well, and yet that's often not the case. And unfortunately, though Gideon does continue to pursue the enemy in the context of the battle with Midian, the end of the chapter, the last 23 verses actually of the chapter, paint a different picture of his life after that victory. After that battle, Gideon doesn't seem to continue to pursue God with the same faithfulness with which he pursued the Midianites. And I'm not seeking to be at variance with what the author of Hebrews tells us about his faith or his strength, but we have to, we can't ignore one passage of Scripture for, uh, over against another. Um, and the author of Judges is trying to make a point to us here. He starts layering in a number of details regarding Gideon that serve as a warning to us. And so I want to highlight just a few of them. They may have caught your attention as we read, but that was a little while ago just want to highlight a few of these things. First, when Gideon executes Ziba and Zalmunna, we are introduced for the first time to something that looks very much like an ulterior motive. God had commanded Gideon to execute these kings, but when Gideon goes to do it, it's not because God had told him to do so, but it's actually because of his, brother, his brother's murder. So Gideon here and in executing these men is acting as an avenger of blood. And while we might be willing to say that these motives could be compatible with God's will, and at times in Scripture they are, we, we can't here ignore that Gideon tells them, Gideon's own account, if you had let my brothers live, I would not kill you. You see what he's doing right there? He, he's, that's significant. God had told Gideon to kill everyone and the kings. Gideon's saying, if you, hadn't, if you had let my brothers live, I wouldn't have killed you. This reveals that his motivation isn't so much, unfortunately, obedience to God's command as it is getting his own vengeance. That's troubling. Second, 
While Gideon responds well when the people want to make him king, he says, no, I won't be Lord of you. My children won't be Lord of you for the Lord is going to be your king. He responds well. We see that after that, there's a quick pivot and a turn. And he's not content with God's well done. He asks them for something. He says, give me some gold. Certainly, if they were willing to make him king, he knows that they would be willing to give him something much less than their full-on allegiance. If they were willing to make him king, wouldn't they be willing to each give an earring of gold? So he asks them for it. We see that he asks his gold as his reward from the people. Certainly, uh, they, they would have made him king. Okay. Um, this section should remind you very much of Aaron at the base of Mount Sinai, doesn't it? Aaron's actions and Gideon's actions are very similar. They both ask for gold from the people. They fashion out of that gold an object of worship that leads the people astray. That's the second thing. A third thing we could notice is that due to his military victories and immense wealth, remember, he got all that gold from the people, that Gideon became a very desirable man. A lot of ladies were thinking, hmm, life, life with a guy like that looks easy. That's, that's desirable. We're told that he married many women, as a king would do, and this was disobedience against God. God had already told them before not to marry. That wasn't the pattern God set for them in Eden. And he had already warned them against having many wives. So this, again, is a turning, a thinking he knows better, a thinking that he had accomplished something and now he was going to do what he wanted to do. Fourth, fourth thing, Gideon didn't just have wives, but he had a concubine living with him in Shechem. Again, this is disobedience. And they have a son together. And think about this, 70 sons, 71 total, counting Abimelech, of all of those sons that the author could have commented on, he comments in verse 31 on the son from the concubine, and we're told in verse 31 that Gideon named him Abimelech. Something many of us probably wouldn't know from the text, but you know what Abimelech means? It means, direct translation, my father is what do you think? King. King. So while he was faithful in saying, oh no, not me, the Lord, sort of a troubling pattern here, especially when you go to name your son, my father is king. Almost worse than being king, have all the perks without the responsibility. While Gideon had given the right verbal response, his actions didn't align with his words. And then verse 33 says, when it came up, then it came about as soon as Gideon was dead that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with Baals and they made Baal Bareth their God. Now here, listen here. The author of Judges is seeking to make the point through the life of Gideon to us. And the point is that we must continue to pursue the Lord. We must continue to persevere in what he calls us to do when we are weary and tired and when we have had victories and when things are good. There are going to be times in your life where you are very worn thin and feeling very desperate and very dependent. 
There are going to be times where you feel like you are the master of your own destiny. At both times, in both scenarios, we must continue to pursue he whom we are actually dependent on. While it can be hard in battle to continue to press on and to pursue, it's even harder when we find ourselves successful. Some of you have been running and there's this voice in our heads that now it's time to relax, to pass on the reins, to take it easy, to coast. And I hold up to you, Gideon, as an example of why you must not give in to those urges. If you've spent your life faithfully pursuing and you've seen success, don't rest on it. Keep pursuing. Don't try and ride out the success of past battles for the rest of your life. Paul didn't say, make sure that you get up a lot of speed at the beginning of the race so you can just coast right over the finish line. He said, run, keep pursuing. Are you weary? Are you tired? That's good. God says, that keeps you dependent on me. That's by my design. Don't resent it. Keep going. Again, Paul said to Timothy in in 2 Timothy, you must continue in. Continue in the things that you've learned and been assured of. He's speaking there of things in the church. But it's the same idea. The things you've already learned and been assured of, you've got to continue in. Weariness is not a reason to stop pursuing. Weariness is a reason to look to God as you pursue. God doesn't just call you to start by faith. He calls you to continue in faith. Run as to win. And it's at the end of the race, if you've ever raced or had one of those appendix bow ties, you know what I mean. At the end of the race is when you actually have to run the very fastest. You have to throw your shoulders down and, and, and heave into it. You have to lean into it. You have to exert the most at the very end. We're to keep going. This is the life that God calls us to. And God is faithful. God is faithful. He will sustain you. He will do things that are far more glorious than, the, than we, what we could imagine. Run with courage, be weary, yet pursue, because the scripture says, he who keeps you does not grow weary or faint. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that is always interceding for us, doing for us things that we don't think to ask, we don't think to call on you for uh, covering weakness that we are blind to. Father, we thank you for how much uh, you carry us, Father. You carry us. And even as you carry us, it can be hard. And so we pray that you would allow us to pursue, to not grow weary of doing good, not to grow weary of the things that we know you've called us to, but it just gets hard or the mission gets old but that we would expire ourselves for your kingdom, Father. When we cross over into heaven, Father, may we not have anything left in us because we've spent our lives expiring it for your glory and for your kingdom as we pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.